0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: something There's a man with a
0: gun over there. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, William Pepper. Today's show An Act of State, part 1. William Pepper is author of an act of State: The Assassination of Martin Luther King, his second book on the King case. Attorney William Pepper represented James Earl Ray on appeal. James Earl Ray was the convicted killer of Martin King. Today's show, An Act of State, Part 1, is from a presentation given in 2003 at the publication of his book, William Pepper.
1: Good evening. It's good to see you. This is my first ever visit to, to Long Beach, so I'm happy to be here. Um in many ways the second work on the king case is more than a book about the assassination of martin luther king and why he was assassinated and and how it how it happened it deals to some extent with with him as a person and his roots and why he had to be assassinated in terms of the the forces who run this country i think It's important to understand that this whole story, certainly in terms of my involvement with Martin King and and then ultimately my involvement years later with his death, because I didn't get involved in this until ten years after he was killed, starts in Vietnam. Vietnam, like in this case, is pivotal as it is in many other incidents in American history and in our lifetimes. I only knew Martin King the last year of his life. I um, was a journalist in Vietnam as a kid, a much younger person, and a freelancer, and never wrote anything or published anything when I was there. I waited until I came back to the States, and then I did write a number of articles and pieces. And one of them appeared in a, in a magazine called Ramparts, which is published out of San Francisco and Warren Hinkle was a publisher. and. That magazine article was called The Children of Vietnam, and it it uh, came out on the 1st of January, 1967. And Martin King saw it. There are actually two versions to how he saw it, but I believe the correct one was that he was on his way to the West Indies and was sitting in an airport uh, restaurant lounge and with Bernard Lee, as bodyguard, and was going through his mail and came across this ramparts as he was a subscriber to this ramparts issue and started to thumb through it and saw the photographs of the uh, burned uh, children and the shrapnelized victims of American aerial bombardment and Bernard said he was visibly shaken and he pushed away his food and Bernard said there's something wrong with the food Martin and he said, no, Bernard, it's just this war. I'll never be able to eat again or enjoy food until we end this war and I do something about everything that I can about that. Well, then he asked to meet with me sometime after that and um, asked me to open my files, all of the rest of my files. I'm going to talk to him about the war and I did that. And I remember going um, one day from um, Providence, Rhode Island to... Cambridge where there was a Vietnam summer program was being opened and um, we were in the back seat of the car and I was showing him a range of stuff and photographs and things and and he openly wept he couldn't contain himself he just uh, had such a, a, a feeling for this and he said to me now you have to come down to my church you have to come down to Ebenezer Baptist and I want you to come down on a Sunday and take the pulpit and be a guest preacher. And I thought he was, uh, he'd was he gone around the bend. I said, you want this you know, young honky from the north to come down and talk to your people? That's crazy, Martin. They're your people. You have to talk to them. He said, no, no, no. And I, I always remember he waved his finger in front of my face like this, and he said, no, no, no. You've been there. You've seen it. Now you've got to come and tell my people why I have to oppose this war. And they'll listen to you because you've been there. But you've got to do that. And I didn't have much to say about that. (laughs) I went down and and I did speak to his congregation and I tried to make them understand why their pastor had to oppose this war in Vietnam and why their pastor was more now than a civil rights leader and why their pastor was very concerned about what happens to the least of those amongst us anywhere on earth and how vietnam was an ancient and beautiful culture and how we were destroying them and how their pastor wanted to intervene because it was his moral responsibility in his eyes to do so and why his congregation should support this intervention despite the fact it was going to cost them money because they were going to lose contributions. Despite the fact that his organization was going to lose great sums of money, Southern Christian Leadership Conference lost great sums of money when Martin came against the war. So that led to his speech on uh, April 4, 1967. One year to the day before he was killed, he spoke at Riverside Church and um, made a very powerful submission as to why this war must end and why America must cease being the greatest purveyor of violence on the face of the earth. I spoke to him very late that night, I think he called very late after the speech, and he said, you know, they're all gone now from me. All of, the, all of the colleagues are gone. They've all turned their backs on me and I will be attacked and maligned. I said, well, you knew that was going to happen. You, know, you knew that was, there was no, no other way that uh, leaders of civil rights organizations that depend on varieties of private contributions and corporate contributions and government funding, there's no way those, those, a lot of those folks were of the strength that you are to risk that funding and try to go on without it simply because it's the right thing to do. People don't usually do the right thing when it hits their pocketbooks, Martin. You know, when we were talking about this thing, you're preaching to the choir, he said. But he said, now you and others have got to help build this movement afresh. And then that started the National Conference for New Politics and the idea that there would be an umbrella organization that would combine all of the movement organizations in the United States under one umbrella. And as a political goal, it would seek... To develop a alternative to the Johnson uh, administration and Johnson's reelection '68, and that would be a ticket of Martin King and Ben Spock, Dr. Benjamin Spock. So he asked me to be um, executive director of that organization, effectively run it for, and I and I gave a year of my life, totally devoted to that development of uh, NCNP, and it was. Subverted badly. We had the convention in Chicago on Labor Day '67, and we didn't know it. We were so naive at the time, but it was heavily infiltrated by agents provocateurs that had been lined up by the government. All black was the first black caucus, and all every black delegate who came in, whether it was from Mississippi or or Chicago or L.A. or Oakland or or Georgia, anywhere, every black delegate who came in was pulled into a room by the minders, by the Black Caucus leaders. And the Black Caucus was made into a solid block and a unit to control the convention in the interests of black organizations, ostensibly black organizations and urban programs. Well, Martin delivered the keynote address at that convention, and. I introduced him, he delivered the keynote address, and as he was speaking, a note was passed to me over my shoulder, and I read it, and the note said, "Get him out of here, right, after he speaks, otherwise we will take him hostage and humiliate him before the world." They were so afraid that if he stayed on at that convention and participated in any of the workshops that um, he would be a powerful force for unification and unity, and they, of course, were determined to divide. Resolutions that were forced through by that group over that weekend were so hostile to other elements of the coalition, particularly some funding elements of the coalition, that it drove away all the money and effectively killed the possibility of... uh, of that major national organization, an alternative, but we didn 't know any of that at the time. We only learned years later about that through various filings in the Freedom of Information Act, and it became clear then what had happened. We suspected it later at the time we were the naivete just dominated. I think one of the problems that the movement had back in those days was that there was still this lingering belief that good will triumph and that government is not that bad and that um if you just plotted on as you were taught you should as, as a citizen in a democracy that ultimately power would return meaningfully to the people and i think that was something we grew up believing and so we acted on it throughout uh, throughout our lives and uh, the, unfortunately the world doesn't work like that and this nation continually has not worked like that. See, we didn't know uh, about um, the Northwoods plan, for example. We never knew about that. We didn't know that Admiral Lemnitzer in 59 had developed a plan to place special forces, civilian clothes, special forces people in various cities of America in order to cause disruption and to kill American civilians under the guise of being Cuban activists, in order to justify an invasion of Cuba. We didn't know that government was up to that sort of thing then. And it's only fairly recently, actually, under the 40-year rule that James Bamford has published this, and got the documents, published it in in his work, Body of Secrets. But we knew none of that stuff. We knew about the harassment. There were suspicions about the killing, of course, of Jack Kennedy and and Malcolm, and 65, and and a number of other leaders in communities across the country, but we didn't know that there was an organized government activity in this realm of eliminating dissent with the ultimate sanction. So that happened, that convention effectively dissolved the movement, but Martin I mean, we limped on for the year, but Martin was determined nevertheless to continue to oppose the war and went around the country speaking about and continued to want to develop and bring to Washington a group of people, the poorest of the poor, who would camp in Washington in the shadow of the Washington Memorial and then go up the hill every day and see their congressmen, their senators, and try try to appeal for the return to the budget of those social program funds that had been removed because of the war, necessity of the war. Now, as he did that, it became clear, particularly to the Army, that the group that was likely to turn up, to come to Washington, and take up residence in that encampment, was going to be very large. It could not be controlled as a small group in size, a representative group, because of the anger and because of the disenchantment, they figured it would be a very, very large group, and so large that they didn't have the troops to put, it, put down a rebellion in the capital, should one occur. And they believed one would occur because they believed Martin King would have lost control of that group. When they were frustrated in their requests, they believed, they being the, the highest levels of the military and intelligence, believe that the more radical leadership among the groups would have taken over control, and they would have had a revolution, and they couldn't control that. They would not be able to sustain it. Westmoreland wanted 200,000 troops. They didn't have enough troops to put down this rebellion. And the history of MacArthur shooting veterans on the streets of Washington in the 30s was a nightmare, and they just were frightened to death. A 100 cities had burned that year. The Pentagon had been put under siege by 200,000 demonstrators. They really were, uh, they were afraid of what would happen. So Martin King was never going to be allowed, one, to continue his opposition to the war, two, to bring that mob to Washington, D.C. He would never be allowed, ultimately, to leave Memphis, Tennessee. That's where he was to be finally uh, terminated. Los Angeles was, at one point, considered as a, a place for him to be killed, and uh, it was switched to Memphis. James Earl Ray was controlled and placed in Los Angeles for quite a period of time. He, he lived here. Well, when Martin was shot, I went to the, the memorial service with Benjamin Spock, and then we went to the funeral, and uh, a few of the people went up to Bobby Kennedy's suite, and he invited us to come up, and uh, I chose not to, and I just disappeared into... Uh, uh, into the night and left. I would had my fill of politics and um, I just just left. And I didn't really consider, really didn't consider a great deal about the assassination or the details of it at that time, nor for the next ten years. And then Abernathy called me at one point and said, in late 77 or so, and he said, I want to go interrogate, Peter, you interrogate James Earl and I want to listen to his and answer his questions and I think it's time that I paid him a visit and found out what's going on in this case. I said, well, what, what are you talking about? I thought they had the right guy. And uh, now you're saying that well, you want to go here. You want me to interrogate? I said, I don't know anything about the case, Ralph. I tried not to read anything about it either. So it took me some months to get up to speed, and I agreed to do it. And went up. we went up. We, we interviewed him for five hours, or I interrogated him for five hours, and we came away. Those of us in that room, Ralph Abernathy, myself, and a psychiatrist I brought who was a body language specialist, came away with a view that James Earl was definitely not the shooter of Martin Luther King. Didn't know what other role he might have played, but he was definitely not the shooter. He was a very different person that had been portrayed to us. One he was a, he was a gentle person. He was quiet, he was almost shy in a lot of ways, very docile, uh, thoughtful and did not give any of the indications of uh, being a racist at all. And we went went at that from a variety of ways with him. Subtly, in terms of the contact he'd had with black people, and he had a lot of contact, he used to shoot crap with them when he finished working in a shoe factory. Uh, After work, he would do that. So he had those kinds of associations. It wasn't as though he despised black people and wouldn't have anything to do with them. So we didn't see that, that he was a racist at all, any more than most white Americans growing up in a working-class neighborhood you know competing for jobs often with uh, with blacks on the next block would be considered uh, racist so he raised enough issues for me so that I started to go into Memphis Tennessee in 1978 when this investigation started and I'd toddle in there and go down to South Main Street and talk with um, people who I needed to see to provide me some information about questions Had a whole range of questions that james had raised and had not been answered and at that time the select committee on assassinations was conducting and completing its investigation and i i said well maybe they'll answer a lot of these questions And when their report came out in 1979 i read it and i was very disappointed they didn't address a lot of the questions they didn't address the questions of uh why the bushes were cut down behind the rooming house, which backed onto the uh, uh, the Lorraine Motel, or the cut down the next morning, why well, that whole area was cleaned up the way it was. It didn't answer questions of really satisfactorily about why there seemed to be two Mustangs rather than just one car, and one of them was parked in a different place. And uh, there were a whole range of issues that they just ignored. And what was a motive? They had no real motive for James Earl Ray having killed him. They said, well, he heard that there was a bounty available. Well, well, there were hundreds of bounties available in Martin King's lives. Uh, People raised money all the time. They said, this money is going to be used to kill King. They went off and bought farms in North Carolina things like that. I mean, there were some legitimate bounties and there were a lot of thieves. So there was, was always this kind of money was, uh, was available. But James was never involved with any of these people. And he was, he was an escaped convict trying desperately to get out of North America. Uh, when he was impeded in Montreal, trying to get you know, traveling papers by a man called Raoul, who eventually became his handler, his controller, and who moved him around the country.
0: You're listening to William Pepper, author of An Act of State, The Assassination of Martin Luther King, from a presentation by the author in 2003. Today's show is An Act of State, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: So, I started in 78, and then as questions arose, and more issues arose, I'd go to see James from time to time, ask him questions. I'd go back to work. And over 10 years, I went at this, and I would talk to James off and on during those 10 years. And he would ask me to represent him on appeal, because he was trying to get post-conviction relief. He had pled guilty in 1969 on March 10th. On March 13th, he filed uh, for a uh, a new trial three days later. And the reason he pled guilty was a whole series of reasons in terms of his relationship with Percy Foreman, his lawyer, but the most important one he always said to me was that Percy said to him ultimately, I'm not a well man, I'm not going to be able to give you your best defense, so what you really should do is plead guilty, and then you get a new lawyer, and you can overturn the plea. That's what you should do. And Jay said, well, I don't have any money to get a new lawyer, and I don't have the confidence I can overturn such a guilty plea. Percy said, don't worry about it. I'll give you $500. I'll take care of your lawyer. I'll give Jerry, brother, $500. And you can go out and hire a lawyer. And, and he put it in writing, would you believe? He wrote this letter. The person who wrote this letter on his notepaper. And the letter said he was giving this $500 to Jerry Ray uh, on the condition that James Earl Ray caused no trouble at the guilty plea hearing. <laughs> he, put this, he put this in writing. We have a copy of the letter. So... So James, well and truly stitched up, he played on the 10th and then on the, and he did cause a little bit of trouble at the guilty plea hearing he said he only wanted to say one thing, he didn't agree with what Mr. Clark and Mr. Hoover were saying about the case, he interrupted at one point Judge, said, what are you talking about? And he said uh, they talk about there not being a conspiracy he said, I'm convinced there was a conspiracy I'm not going to agree, and then and Foreman said "That you weren't asked any question about that James, sit down <laughs> so, you know, and so uh, then it went on and uh, and he, he got a sentence of 99 years. He filed for a new trial on the 13th of March. That petition was being considered by Judge Preston Battle. On the 31st of March, he was found dead in his office of a heart attack with his head on the petition. So there were two people, when a judge dies on the Tennessee law, slight, slight nuances, but when a judge dies and there's an application for a new trial, under Tennessee law, it automatically is granted. There were two people who had filed those motions before Judge Battle. One of them got a trial and one of them didn't. And you can imagine which one didn't, of course. So in 1988, after 10 years of looking at what I could find, uh, during this time I was living in England. I had been living in England since 1981. I moved my family to England to Cambridge in 81. So I'm having to come back across the pond continually to do this work. I couldn't, um, I wasn't here. So, 88 finally I agreed to represent James when I became uh, ultimately convinced that not only did he, was he not the killer, but he was an unknowing patsy, was manipulated. And um, I took him on and we then filed a series of motions and and petitions and ultimately went to the Supreme Court, were denied certiorari. And we were ultimately out, out of possibilities in terms of what we had at that point in time. We failed to get uh, James a trial. Uh, as of 1991, uh, I think, the court ruled against us. So then we came up with the idea of a television trial. So we can't have a real trial. Let's have, let's have a trial on television, but let's make it as real as possible. So we, HBO, in this country, and Thames Television in the UK co-sponsored a television trial, the trial of James O'Reilly. Ray. Some of you may never even have heard about it because it like a lot of things in this case it was buried. But it was shown over here on HBO on the 4th of April 1963. and uh, 1993, sorry, <laughs> that, that's an interesting slip. 1993, 25 years later, it was shown. Um, and it, it had a former federal judge as, um, as a judge, Marvin Frankel, you know, tough judge. We fought tooth-and-nail throughout, mostly in chambers. And I remember one time Marvin, and I can tell these stories now because Marvin died. We beca- we actually became friends at one point after the, after the trial. But during the trial, I, could, I didn't have much time for him. Uh, <clears throat> he was a tough old judge. And he, and he said, one time he said, you know, how can you say the things you're saying? Ramsey Clark is a friend of yours. And he was attorney general at the time. and and I said, what, well, Ramsey Clark and my friendship has nothing to do with this. We can be friends on a lot of things, and we can have differences, which we do profoundly on this case, Marvin. That's nothing to do with it. I said, but why are you worried about my friendship with Arnold Clark? He said, because I'm worried about what my friends will think of me if I rule in certain ways on this case. I said, my goodness, Marvin. I got appalled with this. You know. I said, we're going we're to put your feet to the fire in front of those cameras every time. You know. So you, you, I hope you will rule a proper way. I mean, if we had this the kind of conversation with a judge, I'm sure elsewhere I would have been, I would have been behind bars for uh, for contempt. The, the prosecutor was Hickman Ewing, Jr., who was a former U.S. attorney and who was, some of you may know him as Ken Starr's number two on the Whitewater investigation. So he was a very seasoned prosecutor. He had prosecuted over 200 cases, he said. And I think he said he, he, he never lost one in the, all the history of his uh, being U.S. attorney in uh, Shelby County, in the Memphis area. And he was confident he was going to win this case because this man was guilty. So we tried that case for 10 days with a fraction of the evidence that, of course, eventually eventually emerged, and it took the jury seven hours to come back with a verdict of not guilty of James Earl Ray. So this jury came from all over the country. They just heard what evidence they heard. They went off, and uh, they were a sequestered jury, by the way. And um, they came back with that verdict. Well, most people never heard of that because it was not treated as a trial. It was not treated as a news event. It was treated when it was treated at all. It was referred to as entertainment, and that was that was the end of it. nothing happened in terms of any impact on the official case or public position or official position with respect to James as a result of that trial. A thorough disappointment, of course. But what did happen was that witnesses started coming forward and witnesses started putting flesh on the bones of how the whole crime took place. And from witnesses after witnesses, mainly people who had either seen the trial or who had heard about it and who decided they wanted to get something off their chest, they told the stories. And the pieces started to fall in line. So between 1992 and 1995, we gained an enormous amount of information that we just wouldn't have had without that television trial. I do summarize it there, but there's, and there's too much to, to tell you about here, but one example is Lloyd Jowers. Who owned Jim's Grill? Jim's Grill was the place beyond which, through the back door of which, the Lorraine Motel could be seen, and there was a whole area of bushes. And Lloyd Jowers came to know that we had found four witnesses who were providing us independently with enough evidence against him so that he would be indicted if a grand jury ever heard the evidence. So he got uh, he panicked and he asked his lawyer to go get him. Immunity from prosecution which the lawyer did didn't get it. He went to talk to the prosecutor and he was very chuffed He said look I'm I represent Mr. Lloyd Jowers and and he um, Was involved in a conspiracy to kill Martin Luther King and he knows a lot of the details of that and who was involved and a Lot of the planning was done right in his own his own grill And it was used as a staging area the grill and the rooming house upstairs and Lloyd will tell you all this everything he knows but you just got to give him immunity. Well, long story short, not only did Lloyd Jarvis not get immunity, but he was never even interviewed by the district attorney or any of his staff. They just didn't want to know anything about changing the official story in this case. So Jarvis was still panicking because I was determined to try to get him for that grand jury. So I asked a colleague of mine, a lawyer, Wayne Chastain, to sit outside the grand jury room and just... Seek to get in there. And every time the, the form of the grand jury came out, you went in, tell him you had this evidence about the killing of Martin Luther King, you had this evidence of this crime, that uh, it was a continuing crime, and you wanted him, you wanted to testify to the grand jury. Just badger and badger and badger, <coughs> stay there. So Wayne sat there, and he was there for a couple of weeks, and of course they ignored him totally. And uh, the grand jury was under the control of the District Attorney General's office, and they, they didn't want to hear it. So Jowers knew we were trying to get into that grand jury. So he then offered to go on a program conducted by a reasonably independent guy named Sam Donaldson called Primetime Live. And he went on that television program, ABC's Primetime Live program, and he told the story of how he was approached by a man called Frank Liberto, who was a produce dealer in Memphis and who was a part of the Marcello organization, Memphis came within Carlos Marcello's domain which stretched all the way out to Texas and even Southern California. So Liberto came, offered him hundred thousand dollars, called in a big due bill and said "Now hey, you got to help us with this, this killing, this murder, and, and Jowers was given various tasks to do as a part of the team that was going to carry out the, the killing and it was a mafia contract killing. So Lloyd knew we had gotten information that could indict him. He pushed it. Uh, he told a story in the Donaldson program, said, I'll tell, give all the details of this, all the facts, all the evidence if I get immunity. He was still trying for that. Don't you know it, that television program and that event never became newsworthy. Nobody heard about that. Even ABC News the next morning didn't report it, and it was their own program the night before. So it... Uh, you're seeing the picture now that the building cover-up in terms of media control. So we had to go the next step. Now that next step involved trying to use the evidence that had come out after the trial. For example, Lloyd, one of the Lloyd witnesses against Jowers, a woman named Betty Spates had been his lover, black woman, suspicious of Jowers. Uh, on the day of the killing she came into the grill and she looked for Lloyd. She thought he couldn't see him. She thought maybe he's out back fooling around with some other woman because there were a lot of uh, a lot of friendly ladies who lived at the Lorraine Motel and they would frequent that area. And Lloyd had a roving eye so she thought well maybe he's out there so she's gonna gonna go and look for Lloyd so she leaves, starts to go from the grill into the kitchen and notice the door is closed, which is strange, doors almost always ajar. And she hears a shot as she goes through that door. She hears a shot and she goes to the door, outside door that's open, which is usually shut, and now it's open, and she stands in it, and she sees Lloyd coming out of the bushes carrying a rifle, still smoking, and rushing past her into the kitchen, and then breaking down the gun and throwing the slug into the uh, commode in the in the back there and, and actually stuffing it up because it wouldn't flush. And... Um, Lloyd looking at her and saying, you wouldn't do anything to hurt me, would you? And she said, no, of course not, Lloyd. I wouldn't do anything to hurt you. This was in, of course, 1968. She told me this story for the first time in 1992. Imagine that. She held it back all these years. This is is what happens. You know, this is what happens. She held it back. Louis Ward was a taxi driver, and he had a taxi driver friend uh, who came to the Lorraine Shortly before the killing, to pick somebody up, and guy was putting his suitcases into the car, and Dr. King was up on the balcony, and this taxi driver started to look over, called Buddy, started to look over there into the bushes. He just was looking around because he thought he heard something, saw something in the bushes, and the guy tapped him on the shoulder and said, "Oh," directed his attention to the balcony. Said, look, there's Martin King. Always oh, see him with somebody, and look how, how exposed he is now. And he, you know, People say how difficult it would be to kill him, but look, look, there he is. And all of a sudden, the shot rang out. And he's looking, and King, Dr. King was hit, of course, right here, and he went down. And this driver instinctively turned back to those bushes. And he saw a man come down over the wall and run up Mulberry Street and get into a white Memphis Police Department traffic car that was parked in between Mulberry and Hewling, like this. Get in and go away. So the guy gets on his radio, and he said, uh, King's been shot, but it looks, I don't know, maybe call an ambulance, but I i think it's probably too late. But I think they got the guy anyway, because I just saw him get into a Memphis Police Department. <laughs> <laughs> <God>. <laughs> you
0: know,
1: so. so his buddy, uh, Louis Ward, heard, uh, heard one part of this conversation with the dispatcher, and enough to know that this guy had seen something significant and who he was and, and he was headed to the airport with this passenger who had to get out of there right away before all the ambulances came. So Louis went out, and met him at the airport and talked to him at the airport and he told him that story. He told him that story and then three police officers came and Louis stepped back and he heard him tell the police officers the same story. And way Louis heard was left he was going to go down to see them and give them a statement the next morning when Louis went back to the yellow uh, cab place that night he saw a lot of police cars around and he figured the guy was being interviewed again and uh, that was all there was to it and, and he went off now because he was a part time driver he didn't come back to work for a few days and when he came back in he went into the driver's lounge and he said um, uh, where's Buddy and I see Buddy and there was a silence and, and he said uh, Where's Buddy? What's on the Buddy? And I, I said, finally one guy said to him, didn't you hear? Said, no. Well no. He was killed the night of the of the King assassination. Yeah. Killed? What happened to him? Well, somehow he, he got himself thrown out of a moving car going across the Memphis-Arkansas uh, bridge, mm-hmm. and he's dead. And Louis was just shocked. And then, of course, Louis realized that Maybe his friend had seen too much, and and that was what happened. Well, Louis told this story, also, but ninety, ninety three, ninety four, I think, my first heard of Louis. So people held these facts, held this information in, for all of the all of these years. Never told it, and they because they were frightened, they were afraid, basically, so they held it back. And there's still people today holding things back, but they have. And what's been fortunate in our case is that this was a slippery slope, and I didn't expect it was going to. I was going to get involved in it and it was going to take on a life of its own because I have a lot of other things to do, including making a living. And this was only costing me money, <laughs> not getting anything from it. So I didn't think I, w- I would be at it as long as I was. But because for some reason I have been, uh, I've been able gradually to get, to various people who would normally have taken these stories to their graves. I certainly have told them to anyone.
0: You're listening to William Pepper, author of An Act of State, The Assassination of Martin Luther King, from a presentation by the author in 2003. Today's show is An Act of State, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: So the evidence now mounted, Clearly, after the television trial, and then I read an article in the Memphis Commercial Appeal on March twenty-first, I think it was, by a writer called Steve Tompkins. This was the year of the television trial, nineteen ninety-three, in March of nineteen ninety-three, and Tompkins had spent a year and a year and a half investigating, doing an investigating reporter's job, investigating the infiltration of civil rights movements, going back to the second decade of the 20th century, by army intelligence. And particularly the family of Martin King all the way back were, were under surveillance. And the reason was because after the Russian Revolution there was a great deal of fear that uh, a disenchanted and disenfranchised black people would be natural revolutionary uh, group for recruitment in the Communist Party. So, with that fear they were under surveillance. And Tompkins traced this all the way through, so Quantal Pro in the 50s and 60s was really just a continuation more sophistication of what had been going on for a very long time. In that article, in one tiny little paragraph, he said, uh, when talking about the assassination of King and the likely surveillance, electronic surveillance of him in Memphis, which they had always denied, and which I was able to prove through one of the officers who was conducting the surveillance in the van with monitoring the 26 bugs they had in Dr. King's suite at the Rivermont Hotel. Uh, Poor guy, He, he testified at a television trial about this. He had security clearance. He was an investigator for the Attorney General's office. The FBI gave him a high security clearance. After he testified at our trial, they stripped all his security clearance away. They took away all his privileges. They interrogated the hell out of him. They kept him under surveillance all the time. So he eventually had to leave Memphis and go take on another job, which he says today was great that he did because he's got a great job and he's very happy and all of that, but it was very painful for a period of time. and I felt somewhat guilty about leading this man to tell this story. Uh, but he did it with his eyes open. He even asked his chief, but the, and the chief said yes, but the chief of the investigators did not know what he knew. So he, he said, uh, you know, I was around at that time, and I was a young cop, and they want to know what I want, what I know. And I said, well, go ahead. He said, just tell the truth. So he just <laughs> he told the truth. <laughs> yeah, he, so he just, he just went and he told the truth. So anyway, uh, we didn't know what Increasingly, to how to use all of uh, all of this information that was coming to us, we established the existence of Raoul, for example, uh, that was always deemed to be a fantasy. Oh, there's never such a person as Raoul. Well, there was, and there is, and he's alive and well, and protected by the government. And James had identified him in 1978, and he'd identified him from a photograph that he received anonymously and on the back of that photograph was a name and the name was not the name of Ra- Raoul it was a name of a government DEA agent whom they hoped James would say, ha ah, this is Raoul alright and here's who his real name is, and then of course they would have destroyed his credibility with respect to Raoul but he didn't fall for that, he did say this is, a photo- this is Raoul and that was reported into the two Memphis newspapers at the time that James and Earl Ray had identified a photograph. He'd seen hundreds and never before identified one. This one he did. Well, I got the same immigration passport photograph slipped to me by an intelligence friend and, and, uh, uh, who thought I should have it for whatever reason. And I showed it to James, and he said, yeah, it's the same photograph I identified in 78. In he said, oh, yeah, and he said, it was reported in the papers, and I checked, and sure enough, there it was in the papers. Showed the photograph to Jowers at one point, and he said, yes, this guy was in the grill, and he's in the grill on the day of the shooting, and he also said, and I gave him uh, some of the money. And showed the photograph to an English merchant seaman, who claimed he had met a man named called Raoul in, uh, uh, when he was on in port, up in Montreal, around the same time James was up there, in August of 1967. He said, he identified him, yes, this is the guy who was there. Can, he was a very distinctive looking guy. And then, of course, we found Glenda Graybow, who came forward and who was the most terrified at all, and she knew Raul personally, knew him in Houston, Texas, where he where she met him, and his cousin Armando, and she knew that they were involved in some kind of illegal gun running activity because she would go down to the docks with them they'd take these boxes of guns and they'd bring them back to a house in in Houston and they were packaging them for shipment into Latin South America she didn't know all the details of that gun running operation we found them out later but she knew that's what they were doing and she knew this was Raul and she clearly said that's him and he was the leader of that group and she said and he he terrified me and the reason he terrified her was because one day when she was in there, she put down on the table her key ring, which had photographs of John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and you may have seen the little plastic thing, and Martin King. One of the guys looked at it, threw it to Raoul, who looked at it, threw it on the floor, became totally furious, stamped on it, stamped on it, pulled a gun out of his pocket, said, I killed that nigger, son of a bitch, once. Looks like I'm going to have to do it again. Grabbed her. We'd known for quite a long time, They were friendly. Uh, grabbed her, threw, took her into a bedroom and raped her. Teach her a lesson, I suppose. So she was uh, um, just just horrified with that with that that experience. But this man made, definitely made an impression on her. So we had these this kind of evidence, and didn't know what to do. Well, I, I published a book in, in '95 that took us up to a point in the in the story. The, um, the book included uh, the military uh, operations that came into view. And that was the most, uh, I suppose, the most controversial aspect of all of the work. Because when I saw what Tompkins wrote about, in this little paragraph, that there was an Alpha 184 team in Memphis on the day of the killing, and no one could explain why they were there, I wanted to know. So I went to Steve and he was very reluctant to get back into this in in any way at all. He was now working for the governor of Tennessee. And I asked him if in his spare time he would go make contact with his sources who had given him this information. Little did I know that the sources were two members of the sniper team. and did not know that initially. Then he said who these guys were and they were didn't give me their right identities, but he said they were members of this team, members of the 20th Special Forces Group in, uh, out of Birmingham, Alabama. And um, they now lived in Mexico. They fled the country in the 70s because they thought there was a cleanup operation going on, and so they left. So I said, would you carry questions from me to them, and would they answer these questions? And finally, he wasn't going to do it at all. And finally, he, I badgered him, and he agreed to do it and his expenses were paid, and he would, for a, a long period of time, he would take a set of questions, come back with some answers, I'd give him some more questions. He was coming back and forth over a period of many months we did this. But then the whole role of the military started to come clear. And, and that is, I think, the most sensitive part of this whole case, because while the government did not kill, while the Army snipers, and there were, there were two snipers in Memphis, Tennessee that day, with two spotters and was in the part of that six-man team. And whilst they did not kill Martin King, I believe they were a backup. I don't think he was going to get out of there alive. And they didn't know, of course, that there was this civilian uh, primary operation. All they knew was that they were briefed at 4.30 in the morning. They had, done, they had done reconnaissance on the city of Memphis and on the downtown area, Members of the the unit had come in, had done uh, sufficient reconnaissance. They knew everything. They picked out their spots where they were going to be. One was on top of the Illinois Central Railroad building. It's a huge building. It overlooks the the Lorraine, but it's about a quarter of a mile away, maybe more than a quarter of a mile away. And uh, one of them was up there, and the other was in another building at a straightaway angle. And there were two targets. They were briefed at 4.30. They were shown photographs of two targets, Martin King and Andrew Young, and these were going to be their targets that day. They left at 5 a.m., arrived in Memphis, were briefed on the ground by various people, and they identified uh, from photographs I gave them who were members of the Memphis Police Department and senior intelligence people, and then put into their their positions. Um, So they were there. In ready, ready to do if shooting, in my view, if it had to be done, and it, it wasn't necessary. When the shot rang out, each one thought the other uh, blew, the, uh, uh, blew it off first, uh, and it was only later they learned that it was what they called the wacko civilian who did it. They, they were amazed that, the, that, that that happened. But on the roof of the fire station, there were two army uh, photographers they were psychological operations guys and they were put up on the roof about one o'clock in the afternoon i guess around one i guess it was, by Carthel whedon who was the captain of the fire station now Carthel whedon's a mystery man he doesn't appear in any book anywhere name never surfaced nobody ever called and nobody ever talked to him he didn't exist <laughs> and and one day i don't know quite what it was i thought the man who used to always talk for the fire station was Ed Lonicky. He was a lieutenant. So I wondered, didn't the station have a captain? <laughs> and I used to hang out in the station a lot. I'd, I'd, I'd play basketball there with some of the guys, and I thought they were going to start charging me rent at one time because it was such a critical place from an angle. And I said, yeah, of course there was a captain. It was Carl Whedon. Cartman Whedon, where is he? Oh, he's retired a long time ago. Where is he? I don't know. Well... I found Carthell Wheaton. I said, Why didn't why don't you ever appear anywhere in this, any of the history of the, of this case or any of the investigative reports, the select committee, the FBI, Memphis, the police department, anybody talking? No. I mean, why not, Carl? You were in a you were a captain. You were on weren't you on duty that day? Oh yeah, I was on duty. I said, Oh. Well now, is it true that that there were some photographers on the roof of your station? And they said, Oh yeah, yeah, okay. I put them up there, <laughs> and they tell me the whole story about this. Thing. And of course, he testified trial later on. Hey, I I put them up there, and what were they doing? He said, No, no, they're taking they still cameras. And he said, They're just taking shots. Well, what what we learned was that one focused on the balcony, and one focused on the parking lot. And when 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 King was shot, the one in the parking lot scanned off to the left and up into the bushes, and actually caught the photo had a photograph of the sniper, putting down, bringing the rifle down after shooting. So the whole assassination of Martin King was uh, was photographed and those photographs are still um, still around. We negotiated for a year and a half to try to get them and um, my contact made a mistake, used his his own name once going into a meeting in Miami and uh, the local FBI picked picked up the trail when he got off the plane and followed him to the meeting and then as he was meeting with one of the photographers, he had, he had met with both of them. He was meeting with one of them negotiating negotiating a price, actually. Um, this guy lived in Costa Rica, too. Um, the FBI, one FBI agent just stuck this big, long lens out the car, the passenger side of the car, and the guy saw it and just got totally spooked. And, of course, then read and he said, you know, they, they really know everything we're doing. Um, which they did. They knew everything we were doing. Steve Thompson had done a, a file report for me one time, left it on his desk in the, in the governor's sub-office. And he came back into work the next day because he had a meeting with me at 9 o'clock and we came in. It was gone. Gone. You know, so they, they knew what we were doing. A little Earlier on that trip, I made a mistake of using my name when I registered. I never traveled under my own name. My name, I registered in a hotel and they, they um, that caused a red flag, I guess, and they came in and, and I rushed, rushed to a meeting and left my, my diary and my day book in my room. And they, that was gone when I came back. So, I mean, those are the only things I think we really lost. But anyway, they knew pretty much what was happening at that point in time, and were monitoring what we were doing. So all this information came back, and it became pretty clear that there was this kind of um, military presence. The first man to reach Dr. King was a man called Morel McCullough. He was part of the 111th Military Intelligence Group. He was ostensibly a Memphis Police Department undercover agent. He had been called back to active duty in June of 1967, seconded to the Memphis Police Department, and then he infiltrated a neighborhood group called the Invaders. So he was in with them, and when Martin King was shot, he was the first one to reach him and check him for life signs. So they were very heavily there. King's room at the motel was bugged. He was moved into an exposed room, 306, from room where he used to stay. Not used to stay, never stayed there, but room where they had him staying. Uh, That time, uh, 202 in the courtyard, he had been moved up to 306. And why that happened, we went through that. Um, Black firemen had been pulled, had been told not to return to work. The only two black firemen at the fire station were told not to return to work, not to go to work that day. A black detective who, was one of a surveillance team through looking through the back window the fire station was removed within an hour of the shooting physically removed because he was not a real intelligence officer he was seconded he was a community relations guy and they didn't really trust him so they took him out and took him home physically took him home he just got in front of his house when King was when he heard about the killing come over the the radio One of the first people I ever ran into was Johnny McFerrin, one of the bravest men I've ever known, black businessman, lived up in Somerville, had a gas station and a garage. Fayette County was the toughest Klan County in all of Tennessee, and John was really the leader of the black community in Fayette County. So He had a lot of enemies and was beaten up a lot of times and shot at a lot of times. It's amazing. He, He lived as long as he did, and then after he saw and heard what he saw and talked about it, it's amazing that he's alive to this day. He was shopping at Frank Liberto's place on Thursday, April 4th, and was in there at about quarter five in the afternoon. And it's a wholesale place, so he would just go on, take his things, and come up to the counter. And when he was, when he was in there doing that, he heard Liberto on the telephone he was going about his business. He heard Liberto say on the telephone, Shoot the son of a bitch when he gets out on the balcony and don't come around here and don't call me again and you go to see my brother in New Orleans and collect your money. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but basically that's what John heard and um, he goes up and pays for his things. Liberto's looking at him a little funny because he was actually raised his voice and John was in the, in the place. Sean didn't know what it was all about. He thought it was something to do with some mafia killing or because Liberto was a mafioso guy. And virtually as he gets home, Martin King is killed. And he hears about it. And then all of a sudden he realized, my goodness, what have I heard? This is what I've heard. He was shot on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. So he tries to tell the story. In '68, he went into a meeting with police department officials, with FBI agents. They tried everything they could to break him down, get him to change the story. And they couldn't, he just told what he heard, and wouldn't speculate. Nothing ever came of that, of course. So we had all of this evidence, put it into this first book in 95, and it was not reviewed at all, and it received no publicity. And the only reason it was published in the first place was because the King family insisted that it be published, the paperback edition be published, if Warner Books was, they were negotiating all of the rights to Martin's speeches and multimedia contract. And they said, you can't have any of that unless you publish Bill Pepper's book. So they published this first work in paperback form. And then the King family had come fully on board. Uh, they knew a bit of the things that were going on. I would keep them to some extent informed. Finally, they called. and We had a very emotional meeting for eight hours at Isaac Ferris, Martin's nephew's house, and they decided they were going to go all out for a trial, try to get a real trial for James O'Reilly. Ray. And I said, when you do that, you know you're going to lose lots and lots of money from the King's Center. You're going to take a real bad hit. They said, the family, United said, we know that. We really have no choice. We must do that because if we can't get a trial for Mr. Ray now, the truth will never come out. That was a fear. Is something happening, yeah. What
0: he exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there. You've been listening to attorney and author William Pepper. William Pepper is author of An Act of State, The Assassination of Martin Luther King. Today's show has been An Act of State, Part 1. From a presentation by the author in 2003 in Long Beach, California, upon the publication of his book, He is also author of Orders to Kill, The Truth Behind the Murder of Martin Luther King, from 1995. In addition to being a close friend and associate of Martin Luther King in the last year of Dr. King's life, William Pepper represented James Earl Ray on appeal of his conviction for Dr. King's assassination. William Pepper can be contacted by email at w p i n t l a w u s. -S 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 at AOL.com. That's W-P-I-N-T-L-A-W-U-S at AOL.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see, then you shall find that we are... Of your own cypher, and be on the lookout for those spirit sniper trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what's inside yourself, for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me, you got me?